0: Good morning. It's one minute past nine. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you are tuned to 102.7 3 R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning to you out there. My name is Bron Burton.
1: And I'm Cade Mills. Hi Cade. Oh, I'm fantastic, Bron. That song, I, a few weeks ago I put a shout-out just saying, hope everyone enjoyed their little jig around the house at the start <laughs> of the show. And the text line lit up. We actually had quite a few people getting in touch and sharing them some of their dance moves, um, little crabby emojis. Uh, we even had to call her come in and say so it's basically, you know, that's the way they kickstart their day as a family.
0: If you want to look it up, it's called Captain Dread. And by, um, I think Dreadstar is the name of the band who put it together. There's actually a YouTube link where they're doing it live But at- um it might be in i don't know a music festival somewhere in the uk
1: yeah i know my um family my auntie actually has it on her playlist and so i'll <laughs> be around having dinner and then that song comes on and i'm like i've got to be in the studio what's That's going it? on like i'm almost on air it's that sort of reaction i know to that
0: it. pavlov's dog thing where you kind of you switch into the adrenaline hype so yeah, <laughs> yeah amazing hey thanks very much tim for vital bits and uh thank you very much andrew for soulful bits it's um this is my first show back in the studio for actually two months. This is the longest I've ever been away. Um, but yeah, lovely to be back and lovely to see Tim.
1: It is and it's lovely to have Panel Beta on the panels for the last Marinara. Show for yeah. him, we believe. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm
0: not taking it, try not to take it personally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's a busy man, Byron. He's, um, you know, apparently the party quota's gone up in his life. So he's now <laughs> only coming in at 10 o'clock on Sundays. Gets an extra hour's rest.
0: Yeah, <laughs> panel beater, not lost to Triple R, not lost to you, but um, to, lost to us here at Team Marinara. So thank you very much, um, Ken, for everything you've done for us over the years. I've lost track of how many. It's been a long time. <laughs> Let's go through today's program. Uh, we actually—it's—it's it's charismatic megafauna today.
1: I did have that feeling when <laughs> I saw the run sheet. I'm like, ah! Oh. I do realise that that's one part of my brain that I just any charismatic megafauna information just seems to slide right out because I know that people like Dolphin Dave. I can call up and he knows the answers. So he's sort of my marine mammal brain, I think.
0: I've never heard him called Dolphin Dave.
1: Uh, I started that a while back. I don't think he likes it, so I'm going to keep going with it.
0: We might have to call him Gene Simmons, based on some photos I saw of uh, him Uh, last night at the Kiss concert. Oh, really? Mm. Very, very impressive commitment to cause there. (laughs) Dolphin Dave, Dave Donnelly, uh, will be coming in and bringing some exciting news from the Port Phillip common dolphin community. First evidence of transitional movement between Port Phillip and Phillip Island. That's pretty cool.
1: I did hear that. Actually, it might have been from him. I yeah. heard that. Yeah, it'd be great to get him on air to you know, share the stories with the listeners. Uh,
0: and also, very um, very happy news, five new common dolphin calves. So, he's going to talk to us about the, the new baby dolphins in Port Phillip as well.
1: Oh, that always gets the oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite, um, there's a significant milestone too for the Port Phillip common dolphin catalogue. So, Dave's going to be telling us all about that. Uh, then we're going to stick with our charismatic megafauna theme um, and going to be joined uh, on the phone, or no, by Skype, sorry, um, from Adelaide by Associate Professor Guido Para Vegara from Flinders University about some brand-new published research which has just come out this week, demonstrating how two dolphin species in the northern part pu- nor- waters north of Australia, Um, the Australian snub nose and humpback dolphins successfully coexist. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but when you've got two um, different types of animals that share a habitat and share food sources, you immediately have a competition Situation set up but uh, it seems to be the case that they can actually coexist quite well
1: Yeah, and they did some really interesting techniques to actually work that out like looking at their diets and um, tissue analysis and things like that so yeah. it would be really good to get into that and how you actually work that out
0: yeah that's right because with, particularly with animals you know the big animals that move around a lot it's, it's always posed a real issue about trying to get some of these data and these trends worked out about what it is that's going on with them, particularly when you're talking about population dynamics and, and movement and behaviour and things like that. So, yeah, really looking forward to speaking with Guido about that. And uh,
1: then... Yeah, we've got Katia Fritis from um, Deakin University. She's a PhD student of um, Dr Pru Francis, friend of the show. And she just had an amazing paper published in um, Frontiers in Marine Science, which was Towards a 2025 National Ocean Literacy Strategy, Current Status and Future Needs in Primary Education. So we're actually going to talk to her about how she worked out what the current status of ocean literacy is in Australia. And the thing I love is she's focusing on the Great Southern Reef. And that's those three words we don't use enough on this show. It's, um, yeah, there's been a push for quite a few years now to we've got Great Barrier Reef, that's that little small tropical thing that everyone gets excited about and pours heaps of money into. And then we have the Great Southern Reef, which extends from New South to WA and where most of us live. And it's a huge reliance. Um, we rely on it hugely and we just don't value it enough. So talking about where it is with the primary education. So it be great to get her on air.
0: Yeah, really exciting too that there's talk of a strategy with a, an actual time frame around it too.
1: Yeah. And it's not long. It's 2022 and they're talking 2025. So that's a UN-led um, thing. And yeah, it'd be interesting to hear where we're at and how much work they have to do in three years, mm. whether we're going to get there. Let's see.
0: Let's hope it's how we're going to get there. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've also got some news, but let's have a look at the weather first. Is that okay?
1: We can so I'm do putting that. You on, putting yes. you on the spot there. As I quickly open up the bomb app um, to let everyone know what the weather's going to be like. Um it was. I actually learnt when I was at uni that at one stage the best way to predict the weather was to basically say, well, the weather you had yesterday is going to be what you have today. Um, and this kind of works for the weather for this week. What we had last week is kind of what we're going to have this okay. week, unfortunately. So cold and rainy. Cold and rainy. Um, Pretty much all the way through. It looks like it's clearing up on Friday. So it's got like 15, 13, 14, 14, bit of rain here and there. So, you know, if you survived last week, you'll survive this week and yep. you'll find windows of opportunity to get out into the sun. So there's my very casual weather report for that's this Sunday. That's all you Sunday. need to know. That's it. <laughs> and if you are heading out to the beach or the coast, if you want to go rock pool rambling, the low tide on the open coast is at
0: 12.11. Okay.
1: That's so all we need Get to amongst know. it. Yeah.
0: Come on, spring. You're getting yeah. impatient. I'm getting
1: impatient. Oh, this thing. August is like I. Come on. I'd never say I hate anything, but August is my month that I just don't <laughs> like. I'd, I hate August.
0: We're a bit I'd, over winter. I can't aren't we? wait
1: to get to the end of August. I don't know. There's always a really good feeling when I get to the end of that. So yeah, we haven't got long to go.
0: Yeah, cool. Uh, we've got a minute or two for some news items. Maybe just one, and then we might save the other one
1: for yep. a little bit. All right. So I'll do one. So at the moment. Um, Seaweed is a sexy topic. Everyone's talking about seaweed, particularly the farming and producing more seaweed. And you know a lot of industries are cropping up, particularly around Australia. We're probably behind the ball when it comes to internationally producing and using seaweed. And so Deakin at the moment are actually conducting a survey to just get people's views so people being you know listeners and those people out there listening at the moment um, people's view and their relationship with seaweed and sort of the seaweed industry and how they view it particularly around sustainability so they're conduct- conducting a survey online you know all the human ethics and everything's been approved and we've put a link to it on our Facebook page but I can also give you um, Zoe Britton and Alicia Belgrove so Zoe's Alicia's um, student are running it so if you want to get in touch with Zoe about it her, I'm going to give her email out, and I'm sure she won't mind. So it's Z-E Britta, so zebritta, at deacon.edu.au. So it doesn't take very long. I did the survey last night, about five, ten minutes, and it's just getting your views around sustainability of yeah, the ongoing seaweed industry. So it's good to sort of take stock now, um, and it's great that this work is being done. And as I said, it's on their Facebook page. If you click through to the photo of seaweed, that'll take you to the link.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Kay. You're welcome. I've got a quick shout-out and then we're going to play track. Um, This is to Casey Lee, who is a long-time listener of Marinara and uh, and gets in touch with us from time to time. And um, this actually happened, uh, well, it was probably about six weeks ago. So sorry, Casey, for not getting back to you before now. Uh, It was while I was um, unwell. Uh, But, yeah, Casey, sent us a photo. We were talking about turtles a while ago. Um, and there were a couple of turtles in Portfield Bay. And uh, fo- she sent us through a photo of a turtle washed up on the beach in 1898. Oh, wow. Yeah, in, in Port Phillip. Yeah. So, oh, I might have been Western Port, actually. I'll have to go back and double-check. But thanks for sending that through. We'll, we'll put a link. Uh, we'll put a photo of that um, up on our Facebook page, yeah, too. Yeah, so
1: while rare, it's not that uncommon or not unheard of there. Yeah,
0: exactly. Awesome. You are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. Very excited to welcome into the studio, we've just been speaking off here for the first time in three years, Dave Donnelly.
2: Wow, thank you so much, guys. It's great to be back here in the studio. So
0: good to have you here. Or as you know, Kate calls you Dolphin Dave. Did you know that?
2: I have heard. <laughs> I told you I, you didn't like it. Are we okay with that? I heard the rumour. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, wonderful to have you back. And we also mentioned at the start of the show that um, that you went to the Kiss concert last night.
2: I absolutely did. wound the clock back a few years and uh, got to see Kiss in lieu of going to see the Tigers,
1: uh, <laughs> which would have been also a great evening. So Bron's going to jump straight into the interview now. Hooray. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, I'm um, I'm a. a I'm, yes, very long-suffering Bombers supporter and surrounded by three tigers here. I'm feeling quite vulnerable at this point. <laughs> Let's talk about dolphins, Let charismatic megafauna. Um, so yeah, I mentioned at the start of the show some exciting news. Where do you want, Where should we start? There's lots of exciting news with dolphins right now.
2: It's, it's the time of year. Mm. I know we hate August, but August <laughs> is the time of year that the dolphins uh, have a bit of an influx into Port Phillip, that is the common dolphins, and uh, beautiful uh, animals coming close to the coast and lots of calves. So uh, yeah, I've got plenty to tell you today.
0: Where will we start? Will we start with the babies. We can start with the babies. Let's start with the, we had a bit of an
2: awe moment. Yeah, I I think we had an all moment a couple of years ago too with Dr Beach it might have been, I can't remember but um, yeah they're doing so fantastically well we're now in our third generation of common dolphins in Port Phillip which is absolutely globally remarkable it's the only place in the world that we we know of where common dolphins are resident to an embayment and not only are they resident to an embayment here in Port Phillip but they're also reproducing successfully Uh, our catalogue started at 13 animals and thanks to the work of our new research fellows, uh, Monash University students Leanne and uh, Ella. We've now got 103 common dolphins in our Port Phillip catalogue, including the next bit of news, which is the transients. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you say they're resident and now you're telling me they move. Well, come I'm on, telling... Dave, make your mind up. What are these dolphins doing?
2: It's a little bit of
1: A and a little bit of B. <laughs> um, they're
2: actually visiting your neck of the woods, Cade. Um, we, we have got transitional movement evidence from Port Phillip through to the southern side of uh, Phillip Island, which is absolutely, again, remarkable.
0: So is it is it kind of like they have a weekend getaway where they, they go <laughs> down to the island and hang for a bit and then come back? So is there the kind of their main residence in Port the bay in port phillip
2: yeah look it seems that there's a core resident group um we're still yet to total those animals that work is underway but it's probably somewhere in the order of about 30 or 40 animals that are living in the bay Um, animals that you can reliably see on pretty much every time you go out the bay uh sorry out into the bay Um, and then of course you have these movement this movement of animals which is Fantastic, because it keeps the genetic pool alive. Um, it allows uh, transitional movement, allows good foraging, and just like the penguins move into Port Phillip from Phillip Island, so too do the common dolphins.
0: Wow, so there's a bit of cross-directional traffic going on.
2: Very busy piece of uh, waterway yeah. <laughs> about Northern Bass Strait.
0: Fascinating. So where has this evidence come from? Has it just been, have you got seal spotters, um, not seal spotters, sorry, dolphin spotters, who have... Yeah, how does, that, how does it all come about?
2: It's a combination of a lot of things. Um, as with most people working in marine science, funding is is limited. So citizen science plays a role. Um, university students coming in and, and doing fellowships with the Dolphin Research Institute, they do the real grunt work. They've, they've collated and worked through evidence dating back to 2005 when we first discovered these animals in Port Phillip, Um, only through hours and hours, and and the word is painstaking because it is, it's looking at dorsal fin shapes, scarring, tiny little marks, and then trying to link calves with with adults, and then even harder to do is to track that calf through its life to see that it reproduces later in life, so uh, um, it's really, really hard work. Um, undertaken mostly by our, our students um, and also the contributions of our citizen scientists so it's absolutely I'm beside myself to be honest it's really fantastic news. So I wanted to know you talked about three generations how do you know that? We know that's a good question so we start with the first generation which is the first animals that arrived in the bay um, and I could rattle off some names but they'd probably be a bit uh, quirky and um, And then tracking those animals through fin identification photographs over the course of years and photographing the females with their calves when they're born. So that's generation two, if you like. Um, And then tracking that calf through its life for the next seven or so years, uh, as is the case with at least one example, um, to it having a calf. So after about seven years, they then start to bring... Um, young into the population, it, it seems to be about that number. It's very early days to try and yeah. decipher exactly where we're at with the with the uh, timing, but it's around about that. How, um, sorry, how long do they live for? Good okay. question. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I haven't been around long enough while those calves have grown up. Um, I think, or probably the other way around. Uh, so I guess we're looking at probably something similar to what we expect for a similar
1: dolphin species. So maybe about thirty odd years, perhaps a bit longer. Yeah. Okay. And so, do they produce, reproduce annually? Is that something, or is it a condition thing? Like, as if the environmental conditions and food is abundant, they will reproduce more. Always, the scientists, Cade. Sorry,
2: Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm fascinated. I, 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 all. I, sus- I suspect yeah. it is a bit of environmental queuing. Um, what's what's abundant at the time? Is it a good time to reproduce? But I, looking at the data at the moment, it's about every three to four years okay. for for a female, and it seems to be fairly regular and the, on the animals that we know well. So, um yeah. It's it's fantastic you know early sort of uh late march sorry late autumn to early winter is when we start to see the calves appear um, and when these transients have been discovered they're bringing their calves into the bay too and we have no idea when they're being born so it's um it's a big can of worms we've opened but we've also learned quite a bit as well
0: that's what i was thinking about you know back to 2005 we're talking 17 years ago uh, when the information was at, at its beginning and knowing that there were these animals out there and it was about cataloguing them and having a look at their fins and, and identifying them and we've come such a long way in the last 17 years to understanding the dolphins in the bay and, and, you know, now we're starting to look at, you know, much a much more fine a finer level of information about them.
2: Absolutely. And look, when we first found them, we thought it was just an opportunistic sighting. So, of course, we didn't really twig for a little while until we continued to see them. And this was during um, other dolphin surveys being operated in the bay. And then we sort of got, hang on a second, we're seeing these animals over and over. I wonder if they're the same ones we're seeing. Yeah. So a couple of years later we're going, they are. They are the same ones. And I was just speaking to one of our uh, research fellows on Friday and she had discovered a match to an animal I photographed last week to 2005. It's oh, wow. fantastic stuff. It's, yeah. It really is. And um, look, it's something that doesn't happen very often uh, in terms of its uniqueness around, you know, for for oceanic species to be colonising and embayment, And we've got it right at our doorstep. This is information that's going to help inform uh, the new environmental management plans which are on the way. Um, retrospect... Not... Excuse me. Um, Contemporary data is really what's going to answer the questions that need to be answered to manage the bay correctly. This, The information from the retrospective point of view is very useful in a baseline sense, but really what's happening now, and that's what we're trying to achieve, is this what's happening now answer to the questions.
1: Um. One of the things I was wondering is like this technology creep over this time too. So in 2005, it would have been quite difficult to get nice, clear shots of fins. But as time has gone on, a lot more people have cameras. Cameras are getting more powerful. A lot more people are aware of the work that you're doing. I'm assuming that basically, you know, people like listeners out there are the ones that are often sending in a lot of this information to you. Is that How are you coping with all this information that's starting to come in? Um, well, we have spoken about
2: Podwatch before and we've actually got something um, very similar. It's called Pod Surveyor, which we've got the people of Mornington in particular um, using. So they're when they're walking their dogs or sitting on a clifftop looking for whales or dolphins in the bay, they can log their effort and also log the, uh, the animals that they're seeing. Of course it's very difficult to do fin identification, but we are getting presence absence so habitat use stuff. and, and I must also add that these animals are ranging only between Mount Eliza and Mount uh, and uh, so it's a very very small area. They have expanded over the course of time um, but uh, it's still a very very small area. I
0: had a, a couple of quick questions and then uh, will you stick around for our chat with, uh, with ghetto?
2: Guido Parra. He's yeah. a, yes, he's a good a f- a friend of mine. We've worked together on southern right whales. I so. figured
0: uh, you probably know a lot more about what he's got to talk about than we do. So it would be really wonderful to have your expertise here, Dave. He's
2: a groundbreaker. And I might just add to the answer to the question I, for Cade is the reason we got that detection from 2005 is scanning slide film. So the <laughs> yeah. first photos uh-huh. that I wow. took of those common dolphins, um, along with my colleagues on the day, was, was with slide film. So uh, there you go. The technology has advanced somewhat.
0: I can hear a bunch of people, very young people out there going, what's (laughs) a slide, (laughs) Mum? My own own kids included. Um, You're talking earlier about the first generation, second generation, now third generation. Are the first generations still there? Are these generations all living concurrently?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Look, we we know of one animal that's passed away since we've been doing this work. Um, But the the rest of them, um, I keep saying, it's, we keep seeing these old, what I call the old girls. Well, they're the, they're
0: the grandparents.
2: They, they are exactly. You're right. It's three generations. So you've got grandparents, if you want to call them that. And anthropomorphizing dolphins, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather dolphin morphise humans. <laughs> um,
0: but in terms of their, you know, there's a whole world of research potentially out there now because of you know the the well documented um, uh, matriarchal behaviours of other cetaceans like orcas, and you know the the significant role that they play with their own um, communities. Can we use that word? I think Communi- that's I think that's okay.
2: That's correct. That's what they're described as <laughs> in Port Phillip.
0: Uh, yeah. So anyway, whole whole bunch of potential research in terms of the role that these ma- potential matriarchs might play as well.
2: Absolutely. And and the the group is what we call the matriarchal group, or as I just said, the old girls. Yes. Um c- accompanied by one Adult male, um, oh. which is actually very similar to killer whales. So, yeah, okay. uh, yeah his name is Tallfin. And uh, if you ever go out in the boat with us to, to photograph dolphins, you always take about a 1,000 photos of Tallfin because he, he seems to uh, enjoy the wash of the vessel. So okay. uh, if a dolphin fin pops up and you can't pick it straight away, you just take the photo and go, oh, him again. <laughs>
0: I think I'm on team Torfin. Um, <laughs> uh, one last question Then we'll have to move on um, But the, the significance of these five new calves For the um, Port Phillip Common Dolphin catalogue Because there's been a bit of a milestone reach now I believe
2: Yeah, we've just cracked over 100 animals. So um, with the calves themselves, it's difficult to catalogue them in the early days because they're unmarked and they haven't fully formed. But we have assigned them to their mums. um, And as they go over time, uh, we will add them to the catalogue when they acquire some nicks and notches and markings. And, of course, they'll be added. So who knows where it's going to stop? It hasn't plateaued yet.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Bron. Going to stick around?
1: I'll certainly stick around. We'd love to.
2: Excellent
0: got time for maybe one quick news item, Kate? Yeah,
1: this one came to my attention um, during the week. It was actually in the age that um, the Federal Environmental Minister, uh, Tanya Plibersek, um, was at, I think, the press club, you know, yabbing away, talking about all the good things that they're doing. But she recently said that Australia has already reached its UN goal of 30, 30% protection in the marine environment. Interesting. Yeah, and... Um, 23 prominent Australian scientists wrote her a letter saying that's complete BS. <laughs>
0: <laughs> does, it deter, does it depend on how you define the word protection?
1: And that's what it is. And we've had Chris Smythe on the show a couple of times this year and I'd recommend going back to listen to that. He's a bit of a doyen of um, marine protection in Australia and Victoria. And, it, yeah, it's how you use the word marine park and how you define it. So you ended basically saying it's like no ex- – extrapolation of anything so no commercial fishing no oil and gas exploration anything happening in a marine park but we do have parks where that still exists so you know with that 30 percent it's basically including all those places where you still allow commercial fishing you still allow that to happen so we really haven't got there yet so it was great to see the scientists react quickly and get onto it and say no that's it's complete bs and bring that back um because we do have a long way to go as it stands we only have nine percent of our commonwealth water and nine percent of our state water is actually fully protected so again we've got a very short time 2030 is the timeline there so we've got a lot of work to do to protect another you know 21 percent of both commonwealth and state waters. so yeah scientists are calling for the full 30 and are sort of holding our account so it was great to see and it was good to see scientists actually using their voice they often sit often sit in the background sometimes talking to each other saying it's BS, but it was nice to see it out there in the public.
0: Absolutely. Good to see it called out. Yep. Now, as we've just been discussing with Dave Donnelly, we southerners are pretty familiar with our local dolphins, the common dolphin and its cousin, the bunaranth. Burren and I always mix that up dolphin in my head. But uh, up north in waters between Australia and New Guinea there are two completely different species of dolphins, the snub and humpback dolphins. Ecologists know that coexistence between two similar types of animals is often difficult, particularly if they have a similar habitat range and a similar diet because of competition for space and for food. But some new research by Flinders University scientists has now shed some light on why the snub and humpback dolphins seem to successfully coexist. Detail us about this research and what it means. We now cross to Adelaide and welcome from Flinders University, Associate Professor Guido
3: Para Vegara.
0: Good morning, Guido. Welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara. Uh,
3: good morning. Thanks for having me today.
0: Great to have you with us. We have Dave Donnelly with us as well. Uh, so just letting you know that because I believe you know Dave quite well.
3: Good
2: morning, Guido. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. <laughs>
0: Um, really fascinating research, Guido. I thought maybe we might start talking about these dolphins in question because they're not really familiar to us uh, down south. Can you tell us a bit about the snub and humpback dolphins?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, most most people won't be familiar with these two species, the Australian snub and Australian humpback dolphin. They are primarily found in shallow waters of... The tropics and subtropics between New Guinea, Southern New Guinea and across Northern Australia. Throughout their range in Northern Australia, they are known to live pretty much in direct sympathy, so they coexist in very similar habitats. And ecologically they are relatively similar, both occur in very small populations uh, of usually fewer than a hundred. 150 individuals they use very similar habitats and they use them in a very similar way Um, so we've always been sort of wondering how these ecologically similar um, dolphins actually uh, manage to coexist in these uh, similar habitats.
0: And you mentioned the word uh, sympatry which is really what that describes isn't it?
3: Yeah, so it it describes co-occurring species in the same uh, location and time.
0: I wanted to ask you about sympatry and this concept of coexistence, which is what you're studying, um, sort of the nuts and bolts of that, why animals yeah. are able to coexist together. Why is it considered to be particularly important to ecologists and marine ecologists?
3: Well, if it's very important because if you look at any natural sort of ecosystem, what you see is, uh, uh, you know, a composition of assemblages of coexisting species that are occupying, you know, a variety of different trophic levels, different positions in a food chain or the food web. And the interactions between these coexisting species have a very strong influence on the structure and functioning of animal c- communities, so they promote biodiversity. So in a way, if we're able to understand the mechanisms, um, you know, promoting or facilitating species coexisting, we'll be able to understand how biodiversity is not only maintained, but also how to protect it.
0: Yeah, and as uh, various factors have an impact on those mechanisms, how that then will have a flow-on effect to biodiversity as well.
3: Exactly.
0: Mm. I wanted to ask you about ecological niche theory and, uh, and how that fits in here.
3: So ecological theory predicts um, that species that have very similar niches so that have very similar requirements should not or cannot coexist if the resources are limited Um, so when you have species that are coexistence they need there needs to be some differentiation in regards to their resource use either in space and time so when you have species that have very similar ecology they could coexist providing they have some different ways of using their habitat or how they associate with different environmental variables in that particular habitat where they live.
0: Yeah, and this is why your research is so important. Let's take a look at that paper now published in the journal Ecology and Evolution. So I'm just going to read the title of the paper, which is Isotopic Niche Overlap between Sympatric, Australian, Subfin and Humpback Dolphins. So let's start that. Uh, we'll break that down a little bit. We've talked about um, what Sympatri is. Uh yep the isotopic niche overlap um, let's talk about the, the relevance of uh, of isotopes and and what you've done here in, in order to I mean it's really set up the mythology for your study
3: hasn't it yeah sure so um, as you can imagine one of the main ways that you know uh, species uh, are able to coexist is by eating different things and looking at how dolphins might Half dietary partitioning uh, is actually quite difficult. Um, these animals are highly mobile, and as you can imagine, spend most of their time underwater. So direct observation it's 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 very limited. So one way of looking at their diet is looking at stable isotope analysis. Um, isotopes are pretty much just uh, atoms of the same element. Uh, that are found everywhere um, and are incorporated into the tissues of animals as they eat and as they live through different environments. So if we can measure the ratios of different isotopes in their tissues, in this case we we did skin, and knowing some uh, knowledge about how these isotopes occur in nature, we can actually trace them back And figure out things about how how which sort of animals these species are eating and where which habitats they're using um, to do it so we use this knowledge and this sort of technique um, to look and to better understand the feeding ecology of snuffing and humpback dolphins so we went out and collected small skin samples of uh, different um, individuals of both species and look at the differences in this isotope uh, signature of carbon and nitrogen that these species have in that particular tissue.
2: Guido, um, Dave here. Um, yep. you, you could be describing Port Phillip in here in Victoria with the, the two resident species we have. Um, what I was interested in, in hearing about, and by the way, congratulations on this uh, excellent paper to you and your colleagues. Um, Thank you. Do you see any sort of um, uh, evidence of non-coexistence, i.e. aggression between the two species, or even perhaps interbreeding?
3: Yes, we do. Uh, I mean, these two... Particular species, I mean, coexist to the point where they do form uh, what we know as mixed species um, groups. So when they come together, they do interact, and those interactions range from very amicable to very
2: aggressive. You're still describing Um, Port Phillip, Guido. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, The nature of those interactions is something that we're still... Uh, you know, looking into and why they vary uh, so much from one instance um, to the other. Um, but yeah, so they do do interact.
0: Guido, you know, I'm just conscious of time. We're going to need to wrap up in a minute. Uh, I yes, just sure. I really really wanted to get to the results of this paper and why yeah. it's so significant, and then um, and where this will lead with future research. So, what did you find? So, once you've done your isotope analysis, uh, what did you find?
3: So what our results show is that despite similarities between these two species, it seems that humpback dolphins were more likely to have a larger carbon isotope range, which suggests they may forage on a wider range of habitats than snuffing dolphins and in contrast nothing dolphins were more likely to have a larger nitrogen isotope value than humpback dolphins which indicates they may forage on a wider diversity of prey so you have one species that is feeding on a large variety of prey and another one that might not be feeding on such a wide diversity of prey but is using a wider diversity of habitats so that Slight difference <laughs> might be promoting uh, their coexistence.
0: Yeah, Dave's just saying very similar to the patterns that, uh, that he's observing here with our two uh, species of dolphins. So you've got one species of dolphin, which is basically consuming different types of morph- different types Mm -hmm. of food and the other one which is actually able to forage over a wider area and it's those two factors combined that mean they can coexist amazing stuff guido i could talk to you for another half hour on this but we're gonna need to move on um would love to have you back though to talk about uh where you're heading next with this research because i'm assuming like with most wonderful science uh and and research that it just opens once you get to your results it opens up a whole whole uh range of, of more research to do
3: yeah, for sure. Happy to come back anytime. Yeah. And happy to come
2: to Port Phillip, Guido, and do some yeah, nice work. Yeah, for
3: sure. you got to invite me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> invitation's think, in the mail.
0: Yeah, I think you've just been invited, Guido. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: All right. Nice talking to you guys. Great. We'll Bye. catch you again.
0: Bye for now. Dr. Guido Paravegara, amazing research. It's
2: so incredibly like Port Phillip, uh, the interactions between our two species. It's, it's like he was reading from our
1: songbook.
0: Yeah. I think you guys need to get together and compare <laughs> notes and do it all again do it all again exactly yeah
1: our next guest is Katia Fritas she's a PhD student at Deakin University with one of the friends of the show Prue Francis um, Katia like Prue is determined to improve ocean literacy in Australia and I think that's something all the listeners of Triple R can get behind um, particularly those of us living on the Great Southern Reef welcome to the show Katia
4: Hello. Good morning. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
1: It's so good of you to join us. We mentioned earlier that, or I didn't mention earlier, but... Bron, we've been quizzed, haven't we, as to whether we were ocean literate by Prue?
0: I know. It
1: was stressful. It
0: was really stressful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, uh, I, and I, I
4: remember a, that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and everyone playing along at home, I have a feeling they also passed, like us. We got through. I remember my answers were so short because I was just scared of getting it wrong. And so... Yeah, and basically the the definition of ocean, ocean literacy is that understanding that the oceans in the un, understanding the oceans' influence on you and your influence on the ocean. So it's quite a simple thing to use as a definition. But I mentioned earlier this this Great Southern Reef thing. What's that, Katia? <laughs>
4: So, um, yeah, you were right about the ocean literacy definition. I remember that uh, Dr. Pru Dr. also mentioned that uh, it's having, uh, breaking it down a little bit, it's having this um, knowledge about the fundamental concepts of the functioning of the marine systems and using that knowledge to communicate about the ocean in a meaningful way and also make responsible decisions about the marine environment. And yes, and my research focuses a lot on raising awareness and protection of the Great Southern Reef which is a reef marine system, an interconnected shallow rocky reef system that stretches along 8,000 kilometres of the southern coastline of Australia. So it's amazing. (laughs) And it's mainly formed by kelp forests.
1: Yeah, and it's where basically all of us, most of us listening to the show sort of live. And when we're going down to the beach or we're going to a rocky... Sure, we're exploring the Great Southern Reef. I don't think we realise that. Now, we have you on to talk about your recent publication in Frontiers in Marine Science. Now, I read out the title before, and I'll do it again. It's Towards a 2025 National Ocean's Liter- Ocean Literacy Strategy, Current Status and Future Needs in Primary Education. Now, before we get on to the current status of ocean literacy and the future needs, why 2025? Why is this three-year timeline
4: yeah, so this three-year timeline—it's actually an expectation by the United Nations uh, Decade for Ocean Science, where it is expected that by 2025, ocean literacy it's included in the formal education systems around the world. So that's why the date.
1: So, oh, so that's not just Australia; that's around the world. Okay. Yeah, so yeah
4: yes, it's not only Australia; it's yeah, uh, worldwide. Uh, a goal that it's. Um, and to be reached worldwide, yes.
1: Yeah, and so one of the things I'm curious about, how did you actually go about determining what the current status is of ocean literacy in like Australian schools?
4: Yeah, good question. So (laughs) we looked at uh, how ocean literacy looks like or the panorama of ocean literacy in primary uh, education, in formal primary education. And for that, we also focused on the Australian states bordering the Great Southern Reef. Um, the way we did that is that we created this survey. So we looked at previous surveys in research conducted around the world for primary uh, education. And we also created our own questions because the three main things that we wanted to know was, uh, first of all, if marine science was being taught in uh, primary schools, uh, because it's not formally included in the curriculum just yet. So we wanted to know if it was being um, um, part of the, of the programme and if teachers were teaching it. Then we wanted to know like, if the teachers that were teaching it, how often they were doing it and which te- teaching methods they were using to do so. And lastly, but not least, it's actually very important, we wanted to determine the barriers for the inclusion of ocean topics in the curriculum so we can work towards that. So, what we did, we asked these teachers uh, what would motivate them to include um, or to improve for those that already teach um, ocean literacy in their lessons.
1: Wow. So, I know you did a lot of work to actually get access to the teachers, Um You had to basically find, I think, was it 4,000 schools you got in touch with?
4: Yes. Then you had to get in touch with the principal
1: and then get the principal to actually send the survey to the teacher. And this was all during a pandemic when everyone was stressed out and (laughs) teaching online and working from home. So you did an incredible job just to get respondents, I think. And the fact you got enough to be able to produce a paper is sensational. So I want to get to that first bit. Is marine science taught? I think everyone listening wants to know that. Is it being taught in our schools and how often and how many teachers? What sort of representation are we getting?
4: Yeah, so I can uh, tell you a little bit more about the process later on. But yeah, the main results that we obtained was that, and more or less as we expected, it's that marine science is not being taught very often. Actually, the majority of the teachers uh, rarely or only occasionally teach marine science in their lessons. Uh, but uh, to focus also in the positive side of things the teachers that actually already that are already teaching marine science they are using this cross-curricular approach so we ask them which which learning areas they were using to do so and all the nine learning areas were mentioned at least once so this is uh, great news because we do need this uh, cross-curricular approach because one of the main barriers for the inclusion of ocean literacy is an already crowded curriculum and so and the lack of time. So that was one of our main results for this survey.
1: And so when you say cross-curricular, cur- you basically mean that it's being taught like in science, but it's also in arts and then it's outdoors. It's like a cross sort of everything. And is this sort of led by, I guess, teachers that are passionate in this area sort of going, how can I crowbar this into the curriculum?
4: Yeah, it surely is. So, um, that's right. It, it's mainly taught in science, uh, but teachers are using other areas such as the humanities, the arts, English, even physical education. And, uh, and yes, we know from our qualitative data that these teachers, uh, most of them or already have a background in marine science or uh, live really close to the coast and are already very connected with the ocean so they have this passion and this connection about teaching uh teaching about the marine environment so that definitely um it's very important when in their decisions of including or not uh, marine topics in their lessons
1: so i hope i'm not stealing your answer here but i guess it's about just getting more people in general, but also teachers passionate about the marine environment, which is something that, I mean, duh, we're on a show called Radio Marinara, of course we're passionate, but it's not that way for a lot of people. What, we're getting towards the end of the show, what's the future hold? Like, what what are you working towards and what are you trying to do to basically improve this amongst schools?
4: Yeah, sure. So, teachers, so as I mentioned before, we, we were really keen on uh, understanding what are the main barriers, and so we asked teachers what would help them. Uh, So we can work in collaboration with them and they mentioned that they would like to have a better knowledge of marine science and also educational resources that uh, align with the Australian curriculum. So uh, where to from now? What we're doing and this part of my uh, next chapters of my thesis is is that we created this program, these workshops where where these teachers will will get the knowledge and the skills on how to bring the ocean to the classroom. And for that, we also developed an educational resource uh, which has uh, marine science activities that are linked with the picture books that Dr. Prue Francis also mentioned before that we are using as an educational tool. Because in general, teachers and students respond really well um, about learning learning about the ocean through um, children's literature. And now, so oh, sorry, uh, Cardia, we developed um, this, this booklet that it's linked uh, to the Australian curriculum, so,
0: but also um, to these
1: books. <laughs> Cardia, so sorry,
0: Cardia, we have to cut you off. Our our program's about to end. So. We're going to have sorry. to get
1: you back on. Basically, you're on a roll. So are we. We could have kept on going for a long time. Thank you so much. We will get you back on after Radiothon. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and we will Sounds chat fantastic. soon. <laughs>
0: that us to it, always,
1: it. always happens that way, doesn't it, Brian? <laughs> yeah. We have amazing guests. <laughs> Thanks talking.
0: very much. Thank, Thank you, Cardia. Katia. Thanks to our guests today, Cardia uh, Fritas, to uh, Guido Para Vegara, and to Dave Donnelly. Thank you so much, Cade Thank you,
2: bro. Thank you,
0: Kent, very much. Thank wrapping you. up our our last program, and we're so very grateful to you for that, uh, for everything that you've done with us, uh, Kent, as our panel beater, but uh, also as our pod father. So yeah, really great stuff. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.